the Calvary Bible Church ministry. There is a limited reach. We have a very limited reach. And, and just because it's associated with us, there are some churches that will never tell their uh, congregation about it. We can't always do it on Sunday morning because, you know, we don't always encourage people to leave one congregation just to come here to listen to a special guest speaker that we have. So oftentimes we'll have it on a Thursday night. Last, last event we had was Dr. Danny Faulkner who showed us the stars. But we want to continue inviting uh, high-caliber speakers to talk to us about different apologetic and scientific uh, topics. And we want to teach as many people in the Flagstaff area with this type of apologetic and biblical creation science. So we have some big goals for EDGE. But EDGE exists to strengthen the faith of believers and challenge non-believers to accept the Bible as infallible and authoritative in all areas. So that's the purpose of EDGE. That's the, the whole reason why EDGE exists, to strengthen the faith of believers. When we talk through the biblical narrative and how we can trust the biblical narrative, that strengthens our faith. But also, as we give scientific evidence for the biblical narrative, that helps challenge non-believers to see that the Bible is infallible and authoritative in all areas. So how do we do this? We do this with a compassion and respect for all people, combined with an uncompromising adherence to Scripture as our source for interpreting the world. So we, we start off with a viewpoint that starts with the Bible. The Bible is going to give us all the information we need, and then we will interpret the scientific data through the lens of the Bible, instead of the, the reverse. So often in our culture, that the reverse is true, that we want to start off with the scientific lens, and then we'll read the Bible through the scientific lens. Well, we want to do the reverse, and we want to do the reverse because we believe that the Bible is God's word, and that it is authoritative. But I also want to emphasize that we do this with compassion and respect for all people. And in fact, if you've gotten our Edge emails, oftentimes we'll give a different viewpoint. And we want to give the different viewpoint because we think that if we only hear the biblical young earth creationist viewpoint, then we won't actually know how to engage people that, that have the opposite argument. So we want to give a well-rounded argument so that we aren't just sitting in the dark and scratching each other's backs saying, good job, patting each other on the back, good job, you know, you know the biblical worldview. But we want to be able to engage people with compassion and respect. And so we've invited Dr. Tim Chafee to come in today and talk to us about uh, why we might invest so much time there was a lot of time this summer meetings gathering together and talent there were not just time but there were talented people investing their talents into the edge ministry and not just that but treasure as well people are investing their treasures into this ministry so so you might ask why are we doing that and we invited Dr. Tim Chafee today to come out and kind of address that a little bit. What is the relevance of believing in Genesis from a biblical worldview? Now, Tim is the content manager at the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. He'll talk more about that, I think. He has numerous degrees, including a doctorate from my alma mater, Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Uh, that was kind of neat to, to find that out. I didn't realize that. So without further ado, I want to give him as much time as possible. So without further ado, we've got Dr. Tim Chafee. Come on up.
All right, good morning. Really? <laughs> Do you believe that? Let's try it again. Good morning. morning. That's better. Yeah, now it sounds like it actually is a good morning. Well, Aaron, thanks for that very kind, those kind words, although when you said high-quality speakers, I thought, well, <laughs> you didn't live up to it today. So um, if I'm moving a little slow, it is because Adam was torturing me over the last four days um, through the Grand Canyon and uh, just loved it. Um, in fact, you'll get to see a picture in a little while. So we're going to be talking about whether Genesis is relevant. Uh, yeah, so as content manager at the Ark Encounter and at the Creation Museum, I'm responsible for developing the writing that you see on the signs when you go through the exhibits. I'm involved in the development of the exhibits, you know, working with the designers and coming up with the ideas that, you know, what we're going to teach and how we're going to teach it. And I love what I do. I love the group of people I work with. I tell people I never have a Monday, meaning I don't ever get up on Monday morning thinking, oh, i got to go to work. No. I love what I do, and I love the people I work with, most of them. Um, <laughs> once Adam left, it, was, it got better. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's fantastic. I'm very, very blessed. And then they let me go and do some speaking and teaching as well, and I love doing that. And uh, so I'm blessed with a, a lovely wife who is not able to join me this time, but um, we've got two adult kids. Uh, our daughter is 26 and has been married for almost seven years already. And my, our son just turned 21 last month. And um, I know when you see her, you think, how can she have kids? Oh, she was really young when we got started. <laughs> but um, that actually is a picture in front of the ark bef- shortly after it opened. And one of the ways you can tell is there's no ramp in front of the ark. Okay? So, um, and you can see vehicles driving back there, the public safety vehicles, which we don't usually do that anymore either. Um, so, there, and there's a lot more plant life around there now, but things have changed. But here's some of the signage that you might see in the Ark and in the Creation Museum. So those are the kind of things I get to do. And then we have graphic designers who have the toughest job on the planet. They have to make my words look good. Okay, and then they put them on the signs and on the displays. So I uh, work with a great team of people and just love doing it. And we're going to be talking about whether why Genesis is relevant. I shared this in the Sunday School Hour. I don't like to advertise books at the end of a presentation. I want to share the gospel and end with that. So I'm going to just share real quickly about a, a few of my resources that I didn't have room on the, on my, in my luggage to bring my books. I've authored about two dozen books and co-authored some of them. Um, but and also have some DVDs, some presentations available. So what I did is I put a bunch of those onto a flash drive. And here's, uh, in fact, a couple of goofy movies that uh, a friend of mine made, and he had me be in there. He said, hey, would you teach a few things? And suddenly he's got me roped. And I was like, don't make me act. I'm not an actor. So it's more of me just explaining a few things. But uh, if you've seen those movies before night at the museum, they're kind of spoofs of those. And they're kind of fun, especially for the kids. But a bunch of the different things that are on there, some of my books as um, either Kindle format or PDF or both, I think, a lot of times. And then um, DVD series on the resurrection, uh, seven-part series over um, 13 sessions, along with discussion guide and workbook and a bunch of my books as well. Those are all available on there, so for just $50. I've got about 10 of those available, and I can do a credit card or cash or... uh, I don't have change, though, so it has to be exact. Or... Um, or if you tell me to keep the change, I can do that. Um, <laughs> or a check um, made out to me. So either one, um, or to Risen Ministries, that works too. So, um, so I get to do that on the side, but um, enough about my books and me. And um, here's um, this. I didn't realize this was in this presentation. Are we on the right one? Yeah, we're on the right one. Okay. So I also got to do, on opening day of the ARC, got to lead 21 atheists and agnostic protesters through the ARC. So I get to do quite a few interesting things at, at work and just love doing it. So um, let's jump into our topic then, whether or not Genesis is relevant in today's 
world. So when you think about our culture today in the United States of America, we have the most Christian of just about everything, right? Most Christian radio station, most Christian television program, most Christian colleges and seminaries and bookstores. All, are there still Christian bookstores? Amazon's just kind of taken over every <laughs> bookstore, right? Um, yeah, there are some. But um, we have, if it's Christian, we've got it and we've got the most of it. But would you say that the church is impacting the world more and more in our culture or the other way around, that the church is becoming less effective, the culture is impacting the church more? Is is our culture, in a sense, becoming more and more Christian or less and less? You know, just everywhere we go, whenever we ask that question, just whatever he says, less and less. What has happened? Well, there are a lot of things that have happened. A lot of things contributed. I don't want to say that it's all down to one point, but let me pull out a big one for you today as we go along. Um, we look at our culture and we see uh, things like what happened in Ferguson, we, in, in Missouri, and we see things like in Charlottesville, and we see uh, UC Berkeley and uh, some of the, just the protests and riots and other things that are going on. We see church shootings like the one in Texas. We see school shootings, you know, like in Florida. In fact, this is a map of different school shootings. The bigger the circle, the more people who were killed. Uh, this is just up to 2018, and of course, it's getting more and more and more regularly. So something has changed. If you think back, if you're my age or close to my age or older, and you think back, would it have been a problem if a classmate brought a gun to school? I remember one of my classmates bringing a gun. Why? To show the PE teacher so I could talk about it. Could you do that today? No. Why? Because something has changed drastically. So when there was a survey that was done about 20 years ago. George Barna, he d- conducts all these surveys, I think, from 2000. says when about teenagers. When asked to estimate the likelihood that they would continue to participate in church life once they are living on their own, levels dip precipitously to only about one in three teens. So these are kids from Christian homes saying, yeah, one in three, we'll, we'll keep going. The rest of them, we're out. So uh, several years later, 2009, Barna uh, did found this, 82% of people under age 25 in our culture said they developed their own combination of beliefs rather than adopt a set proposed by a church. In other words, they got a friend who's a Hindu and they like a little bit of that. They've got a friend who's a Muslim and they like a little bit of that or Buddhism or whatever it is. And they just combine this own, their own system. Okay, people make, they believe whatever they want to believe. And of course they have that right. God's given that right. And in this country you have that freedom. But we should be worried about what is true. Not what do we want to believe. And so 82%, again, these are kids growing up in the church. So what Answers in Genesis did several years ago, back in 2008, Ken Ham, uh, along with Britt Beamer from America's Research Group, conducted a survey of 20-somethings at the time um, who faithfully attended church when they were kids and now never go. And they were asking them, what are the reasons for that? When did you start having these doubts? And, you know, we often hear, we got to reach these kids, you know, by the time they're freshmen in college because that's when they walk away. Well, yeah, that's when they walk away because that's when they're out of their parents' homes. But in their mind, they've already checked out long before that. 40% in middle school, 44% in high school. Okay? And it's not wrong to have questions. That's fine. And that's one of the reasons why it's important to for us as Christians to learn how to defend our faith, to, to study apologetics, so we can give answers to our, our kids and to the teens in our church and young people so that they know that the Bible is defensible, that it is true from the beginning to the end. So that's important. It's, it's okay to have questions. But um, the next survey, take a look at what it was, um, which of these qu- makes you question the Bible the most. The creation account, 11%, earth not 10,000 years or less, 30%, number one answer on there. So 40% of them had to do with creation and the age of the earth. And yet, what do a lot of churches say? 
oh, that's just a side issue. Don't worry about it. And yet 40% of them or more are saying, that's why I don't believe the Bible. And then churches just keep on saying, don't worry about it, side issue. That's a huge issue. Okay? So that's the result of some of that. So we're going to be talking about foundational issues here as we go along. And when I think about foundation, I love showing pictures of my, one of my favorite places in the world to be, and that is the Redwoods in Northern California. Anybody been there before? It's a lot easier to hike there than it is in the Grand Canyon. You don't have to, you don't have to do this as much. It's still hilly, but not as much. And the scenery is incredible. I and mean, I love going there. These things are so massive. I can't really describe them to you. I can't just say they're big trees. That doesn't make sense. It's like if all you've ever seen is a minnow before, and then you're trying to describe it to somebody uh, what a whale is like. And you're like, oh, it's like a big minnow. No, it doesn't really compute, okay? Um, for example, the giant tree, 363 feet tall. That is taller than a football field is long, end zone to end zone. Okay, it's just incredible how big these things, you can drive your car through, or rental car in this case. Um, I mean, just look how massive that is compared to me. And um, my friends like these pictures. They make me look small. In fact, next to these things, I practically disappear. So have a look at this one. Take a look at the, the size and the strength and, and the beauty that's there. And well, you can look at the tree, too, if you want. Um, <laughs> but look at that massive foundation. Why do you think that that tree has such a huge foundation? Yeah, it needs to support such an enormous structure, right? If it doesn't have a strong foundation, that thing's going to collapse. Take a look at this one. Now, that one has been burned out. That tree is no longer or nowhere near as strong as it once was, and it's in much greater danger of toppling over, okay? Now, what I think is interesting is when this picture was taken, the top of that tree still had green on it. It still was getting water, but it, again, it's, it's been burned out at the bottom. And I think this tree in, in many ways represents the church in America and in many places around the world today. And I understand that the church is the people, it's not the building. But a lot of times you see people going to church, they go into the building, and a lot of times they'll have these nice big fancy buildings, and people are dressed well, they're, they're pre- usually pretty nice people. And then when you go in there and you listen to what's being taught, they don't even believe their own foundation. In fact, a lot of times they're attacking their own foundation. And what they're doing is this, okay? They're removing that foundation from their own belief system, their own reason for even going. And they're telling one generation, you don't have to worry about our foundation, just believe this one thing. It's no wonder these young people are walking away when they have the opportunity to do that. So the Bible says that the foundations be destroyed, or if foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11.3. So we're going to be talking about foundations. What is the foundational book of Christianity? Should be obvious. What is it? Uh, it's the Bible, right? Okay, but the Bible's not just one book. And in fact, we'd like to say that the Bible is the history book of the universe. It tells us where we came from, how we got here, why we're here, where we're going, what's going to happen in this world. It tells us all of that, okay? But the Bible's not just one book. The Bible is 66 books. So what is the foundational book of the rest of the Bible? You got it. It's Genesis, okay? How do we know that? Well, Genesis is foundational to everything else we see in the rest of the Bible. And yes, it's at the beginning. That makes sense. Um, and so it tells us the origin of so many different things in our world. It tells us the origin, as we're going to see, um, of our doctrine. Don't be scared of that word. It just means teaching. Okay, a lot of times people think, oh, doctrine's divisive. Well, yeah, truth is divisive. If I said two plus two equals four, that's divisive because a lot of people want it to be five or four, three or whatever you want it to be. Okay, but... It's still true, okay? So don't be afraid of that word. But our doctrine, n- nearly every single Christian doctrine is directly or indirectly related right back to Genesis 1 through 11, 
Okay, if you, let's, let's go through some examples of this. Uh, why does man have dominion in this world? Why do, why do we rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air? Why? Because Genesis 1 through 11, God gives man dominion. Okay, why do we wear clothes? Something we're all thankful for, right? Especially when it gets cold out. Okay, but um, that goes right back to Genesis 1 through 11, doesn't it? And some people think, well, no, it's just because it's cold. Okay, but what about in Hawaii where it doesn't get cold? They still wear clothes. Okay, it goes back to Genesis 1 through 11. You don't see the apes putting clothes on. Okay, you see some people putting little sweaters on their poodles and stuff. But, um, but it goes back to Genesis 1 through 11. Why do we have a seven-day week? Well, think about this for a little bit. We have a 24-hour day. Why? Well, it's the amount of time it takes the earth to spin one time on its axis. We have a roughly 30-day month. Why? It's the amount of time it takes the moon to travel around the earth one time. We have a 365 and a quarter day year. Why? Because it's the amount of time it takes the, sun, the moon to travel around the, uh, I'm sorry, the earth to travel, I'm tired, the earth to travel around the sun. There we go. That's the, those are the words I'm looking for. Um, so why do we have a seven-day seven week? It's the amount of time it takes uh, God to make everything and rest for one. It has nothing to do with astronomy. And yet nearly every culture in the world uses that. It's almost as if we've been created to follow that pattern. Like, like humanity was built to work for six days and rest for one. So think about this. Why did Jesus need to come the first time? Because man rebelled and needs a Savior. We read about that where? Genesis 1 through 11. Why is there going to be a second coming to make all things new and get rid of the curse? Genesis 1 through 11. Okay? Uh, why is Jesus called the last Adam? You can't have a last Adam unless you have a first Adam. Okay? Um, how about why? What about this issue? Okay? In our culture today, this is a pretty big issue, isn't it? And people really struggle with this. Well, there are multiple, there's 72, there's unlimited, there's whatever you want it to be. And yet, what does the Bible tell us? God made them male and female. Right there at the beginning, you got the answer to that question. There's two. Okay? That doesn't mean we need to be spiteful and hateful to anybody who might be confused on that issue or has been, who's been misled on that issue. Uh, we still need to love and treat people with respect like we would see Jesus doing. Okay? That's... That's how we need to treat them. But it goes right back to Genesis 1 through 11. That's how we're created. Male and female. He created them. Okay? Uh, how about the sanctity of life? That's a big issue in our culture, isn't it? You know, in Ohio, they just passed a, a law a couple of weeks ago that's going into their constitution that abortion is going to be legal up to, I think, maybe I'm getting it wrong, but I think it was up to like 22 weeks or something like that. Well, I've met a little girl who was born at 19 weeks. And at the time, she was the youngest uh, micropremied every 19 weeks and four days. She was uh, less than a pound when she was born, 14 ounces. There's a picture of her with her mom and dad's wedding rings around her arms. That's how tiny she was. And then when she was at the Creation Museum, at, when we opened up this exhibit, um, I got to give her and her family a tour of the ark one day and the tour of the museum the other day. She was, it was really cool. Uh, she's just a little miracle child. But in Ohio, they now can abort babies at that age. Okay? But what does the Bible tell us? That every human life is made in God's image. Where does that come from? Back in Genesis 1 through 11. By the way, this is a picture of our Fearful and Wonderfully Made exhibit in the Creation Museum, which is just an incredibly spectacular exhibit. And I'm not talking about just because of the writing. Okay, I got to do the writing. But the stuff that my team did and all the little baby models that are in there, we get people upset. They say, why did you put real babies on this plate? No, our guys made those. They're models out of like silicone and other things. And it's, they're so lifelike. It's, it's just incredible. Um, again, I work with very talented people. Um, so we know 
from science, from medicine, we know from the Bible that human life begins at the moment of fertilization. You have a unique human being at that moment, separate from mom, separate from dad, a unique person at that moment, and it's wrong to take human life. That goes right back to Genesis 1 through 11. How about marriage? It's another issue in our culture that's been under attack for quite a while. The Bible tells us one man, one woman for life. When Jesus is asked about divorce and marriage, he says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Where does that come from? The two shall become one flesh. That goes back to Genesis. In fact, Jesus quoted from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What's really interesting here, a lot of theologians will say, well, these are two separate creation accounts. I don't think Jesus viewed it that way. He quoted from both those chapters and put them together as one. Why, were, why do husband and wife become one flesh? Think of how Eve was made. She was made from Adam's side. or from her, They really were one flesh. So it goes right back to Genesis, the origin of marriage. It goes back to that. And I will guarantee you the churches that are confused on this issue and have compromised on that issue, and the same thing with gender, the churches that have compromised on that issue, do not believe Genesis 1 through 11 should be taken in a straightforward manner. Without fail, they will have compromised that a long time ago. But if they take a stand on Genesis 1 through 11, they're not going to be confused on those issues either. So we see the doctrine of marriage goes right back to Genesis as well. Um, think about that first marriage. Have you ever wondered what it would be like originally? After God made Adam and Eve, he looked at everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. It was perfect. That first marriage originally was perfect. So besides me, does anybody else have a perfect marriage? Guy, one guy was smart enough to put that hand up. You got brownie points, sir. <laughs> Guys, I gave you a chance, and you blew it. Okay? He was quick. <laughs> All right. Um, so, originally, that first marriage was perfect. Have you ever wondered what else a perfect world would look like? Because everything we know in our world breaks down and fades away and dies. We live in a broken, sin-cursed world. But originally, that first world was perfect. No death. No disease, no suffering. Have you ever wondered what that would be like? Originally, God tells Adam and Eve that they're supposed to eat vegetation. And he says the same thing in the next verse for the animals. So animals weren't killing animals for food. People weren't killing animals for food. There's a glimpse of a perfect world, very different than what we see today. Okay, so here's where in Genesis 1.30 where he tells every beast of the field and, and bird of the air that that's what they were supposed to eat as well. And then it, after the flood, I mentioned this in the last hour, one of my favorite verses, Genesis 9-3, in a sense, God says, now you can eat meat. Okay? There's something different that happened after that. And what happened to the world? Why was there a change? I heard it whispered. What is it? Sin entered the world. So the doctrine of sin goes right back to what? Right back to Genesis. Are you starting to see that Genesis 1-11 kind of hits all these issues that we're talking about? Okay, it all goes right back to that. In fact, try defining sin without ultimately going back to Genesis 1 through 11. God told Adam and Eve, of every, or I'm sorry, uh, he told Adam, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he told Adam, be fruitful, multiply. He told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Okay, bless them. And he, tells, he gives Adam this one prohibition. Don't eat from this tree. One thing not to do. And of course, we know what happened, right? The serpent comes along and deceives Eve, and she eats it. And then she gives to Adam, who's with her, and he eats it as well. And what happens? The world breaks. 
okay? Um, and they recognize their nakedness, their shame, and God it says God made coats of skin for them in Genesis 3.21. So that seems to imply that God must have killed an animal or two, right? And so you get the first glimpse of sacrifice at the point. God is making clothes for them. And so there's that first sacrifice. And that, who's the one doing it? God made, did that for Adam and Eve. So instead of Adam and Eve dying at that moment, God shows his mercy and allows animals to die in their place. Okay? Now, the Bible never says what sort of animal he used. At the museum and the ark, we like to picture it as a lamb. I know that might not look like lambs. They're, um, they're skinned okay, because Adam and Eve are wearing the skins and they're stylized a little bit. But that's how we usually portray it. Why? Because that would be a great picture of what was going to happen later when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, would come and become one of us and then would go to the cross and die in our place. Okay? And so it's a perfect picture of what was to come. And the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with the fig leaves, and God says, uh-uh, that's not going to do it. And so this, that's when that sacrifice is offered. And then they're banished from the garden and from God's presence in Genesis chapter, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 4. But something else happened as well. Um, so at the end of 3 and then into 4. But something else happened during that, the pronouncement of the curse where God is... Uh, describing the punishment that's going to happen to Adam and Eve at this point because um, now, woman, you're going to have pain in childbearing and I'm pretty sure the women in this room who have had kids can testify to the truth of that verse, right? And the men who were there watching can also testify to that as well. And then at, he tells the man that there's going to be, you know, the ground's going to produce thorns and thistles, meaning there weren't thorns and thistles before that, but now there's going to be. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow. And then he says this, I'll put enmity, this is to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A lot of theologians refer to this as the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. Well, it's not really like the gospel spelled out, but there are hints of it. Someday there's going to be a descendant of the woman who's going to crush the serpent. And in the process of crushing the serpent, what's going to happen? His heel's going to be bruised. Well, ultimately that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And what did he do? In the process of crushing the serpent, he's crucified. And maybe we, can, maybe we look at it quite literally instead of more of a figurative, your heel's going to be hurt. Um, the two examples of crucifixion that we found in the ancient world from the Romans, um, there's two different archaeological finds. Now, one was found last year in England. The other one was found in the 1960s in Israel in a bone box. They opened it up, and there was the heel bone of a guy named Yehohanan, and there still was a spike driven through it and it was bent upwards like they um, drove it into there and then it hit a knot or something and bent. they couldn't pull it back out of the bone. So they just let, they buried him with it. So it actually went in through the side of the heel. Oftentimes when you see Jesus' cru- pictures of him crucified, a lot of times one foot on top of the other with a spike driven through both. The Romans probably did it all sorts of ways. Okay, I think all of these are in play. But what's, what we seem to find, the two examples in archaeology and one through... Uh, artwork for, uh, called the Alexamenos Graffito, um, like second to third century, where somebody was mocking Christianity and they drew somebody being crucified, the heels on both sides of the upright beam and spikes driven through the heels and then they have like a donkey head on there. So they're mocking Jesus, saying this guy's worshiping his God, a uh, crucified man with a donkey head. So they're mocking Christianity. But maybe we take that very straightforward. Yeah, his heel literally was bruised in the process of crushing the serpent. Um, so ultimately, the foundation of the cross goes right back to Genesis. 
Okay? So in order for us to understand the good news in the New Testament of Christ dying for our sins, we have to understand what? The bad news back in Genesis. So it's foundational to the gospel itself. So if that's so important, and it is, as we've just seen, isn't it important for us to teach that to the next generation and throughout our churches and take a stand for that? Because it's not the foundation the world teaches, is it? It's what foundation does the world teach? Is it this? Sort of, okay? This, it's, it's done in fun. Um, that's, I've heard Christians say this, and you've probably heard it too, like, well, if, if we evolve from monkeys, how come there's still monkeys today? Please don't use that argument. Okay, that's not, there are some evolutionists who will say something like that. That's not what the evolutionary view actually teaches. Okay, what they'll say is chimpanzees and apes and um, humans are more like cousins on this evolutionary tree. And then we all came from a common ape-like ancestor. That's what they teach. So they would say, of course we see apes today. You don't even understand evolution. Why are you arguing against it? So don't, don't use that one argument. Um, but in a sense, they'll say we come from ape, ape-like ancestors. It's very different than man being created from the dust of the ground. You can't have both. Okay, you can't, you can't say man came from the dust of the ground and he also came from apes. It's not, sorry, you can't blend the two. So, the, and it's not just the whole biological evolution issue. There are so many differences between the, this whole worldview of billions of years and evolution and the Bible, okay? So, according to the, the current view, 13.7 or 13.8 billion years ago, some say 14.3, some say 16, okay, they, they're all over the place on that. 13.8 billion years ago, there was this big bang. First there was nothing, then there was something, a singularity popped into existence. It explodes or expands, and you get what's called the big bang. About 13 billion years ago, we get the first stars forming. 4.6 billion years ago, our star, the sun, formed. And then at that time, Earth was just this hot molten ball and starts cooling down. 3.8 billion years ago, you get the first oceans, and somewhere in those first oceans, life comes from non-life. Information from non-information, intelligence, from non-intelligence, three things that we have never, ever observed. And they call that science. Now, some of us as parents have seen non-intelligence come from intelligence, right? Okay. But just remember, your parents used to think that too. Um, this is very, very different than what the Bible teaches. Okay, what does the Bible tell us about that timeline? Well, God created the um, earth and time and light on day one. Uh, at that time, earth was just water, apparently. Um, the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. It tells us on day two, he separates the waters from the waters, creating this expanse or firmament. Um, and then on day three, he creates the dry land and plants. Day four, he makes the sun, moon, and stars. Notice the sun is made after the earth, according to the Bible. The Big Bang says the sun is before the earth. Every view that has billions of years puts the sun before the earth. And the Bible says the opposite. And then you got the sea creatures and flying creatures on day five. By the way, that's after the plants and According to the evolutionary view, sea creatures came first. You can't blend the two unless you're going to change one of them. And which one always gets changed when people try to do it? They always change the Bible. Okay? And then you got day six, land animals and man. Man is made the same day as the rest of the land animals, meaning he's made the same day as dinosaurs because they were land animals. And a lot of people are like, no, no, they lived millions of years ago. Only if you're already buying into that top view. If you just start from the Bible like Pastor Aaron was talking about, that we start from God's word and use that to interpret the data around us, that we're made on the same day. And I have a whole dinosaur talk that shows that there's a lot of evidence that is perfectly consistent with that. So there are so many differences between these two different views 
the billions of years or thousands of years, how can you ever just combine them? Which is what Christians have been trying to do since 1804, uh, late 1800s, or late 1700s, early 1800s, where then this idea of billions of years became popular. So why do we say just thousands of years? Well, if you take Genesis in a straightforward manner, before Adam, you got five whole days. He's made on day six. From Adam to Abraham, you get roughly 2,000 years in our uh, Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text that's used for the basis of our uh, English Bibles. If you use what's called the Septuagint, the Greek version, you can get about 3,500 years or so. There's a little bit difference in numbering. But either way, not millions of years. You get about 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, about 2,000 years from Jesus to the present. So God made everything in six days about 6,000 years ago. That's a straightforward reading of Scripture. And that's what the church has believed for a very long time. Now, I mentioned the ones who use the Septuagint would get a little bit longer B.C. period. That's what you see here in those top five. And then the rest of them are saying God made everything around 4,000 B.C. There's a few different decisions you have to make as far as the chronology goes in, in a few places. That's why you'll see a little difference in the numbers. But this is what the church believed up until about 1800. This isn't a new or novel idea. Now, you have some church historians like Mark Knoll today saying that this is a new idea that's never been taught in the history of the church by any responsible Christian teacher. And yet, this is what the church has always taught up until about 1800. So where did this whole idea of millions and billions of years come from? Because that's the new idea. And there's kind of a hint in the picture there. A lot of it came from the rock layers that we find out there. Back in the late 1700s, you have James Hutton, and in the early 1800s, Charles Lyell Lyell even says that he's trying to separate or divorce science from Moses to get it away from the Bible. Okay, that was his goal. And so they developed this philosophy known as uniformitarianism. The way things are now is the the way they've always been. So if we don't see huge catastrophic processes now, that's how it's always been in the past. If you get a rock layer after a thousand years, well, then every one of those rock layers, it's just a slow and gradual process. Okay? And he didn't say one rock layer a thousand years. I'm just giving you an example of this slow and gradual process. That's where that idea, that's the new idea. Okay? That's just in the last 200 to 250 years. And when there's Christians who try to combine those things, you see a big problem. Because, well, here's actually their chart. So you've got Hutton in 1795, Eternal and Long Ages. And then you've got Charles Lyell in the 1830s, by the way. He wrote a series of books, three volumes, Principles of Geology. And those books happen to be taken by a guy named Charles Darwin on board the Beagle on his famous voyage. And he talks about how doubt crept in about the Bible, crept in slowly, and eventually just turns right over to this. He needs the, mil- the millions of years to promote the evolutionary theory. This came before Darwin. And the church had already caved on so much of this before Darwin published Origin of Species. Okay? As we'll see in just a little bit. So in 1913, students were taught the earth is 1.6 billion years old. It's a fact. Scientists have proven it. And in the 1950s, 1956 actually, the earth had a really bad year because it got 2.9 billion years older. Okay? So Claire Patterson and his team used radiometric dating on a group of meteorites and said these meteorites are 4.6 billion years old, therefore the or 4.5 billion years old, therefore the earth is 4.5 billion years old. Anybody see a problem with that? Where do meteorites come from? Not Earth. So you date something not from the Earth and say, this is how old the Earth is. Be like saying, hey, I'm 49 years old, therefore you're all 49 years old. It doesn't work that way. Okay? But that's what they did. Now, to think about it from their worldview, they think of all of the objects in the solar system forming about the same time. Therefore, if it came from within our solar system, it's going to be the same age. Those are huge assumptions, aren't they? 
And that's being passed off as fact and people are leaving the Bible behind because of things like this. So, which side has the most evidence? Because so often this is the way that people think, right? They're taught in school. Well, the evolutionary side has so much evidence and the Christian, that's just faith. It's just like this faith versus science. It's belief versus fact. No, it isn't. It's not that at all. You see, we have the same evidence. We look at the same stars, the same planet, the same trees, the same fossils. We, we study the same things. And we reach different conclusions because we have different starting points. We start from the Word of God. I tell that God made everything roughly 6,000 years ago in six days. Originally, there was no death, suffering, and disease. And now this is a sin-cursed world with full, that is broken and full of those things because of man's sin. The other view Billions of years, slow and gradual processes, starts with man's ideas, and it changes all the time. God's word does not change. Okay, so there's two very different ways of looking at the same evidence, meaning you're going to reach very different conclusions. And it's not just about the past, because evolution is not just an idea about the past. It is a view of our current, our present, because if we're just rearranged pond scum, is there such a thing as sanctity of life? No. If it's just an atheistic, materialistic world, can you really tell somebody they should or must do something? Or don't they get to decide for themselves whatever they want? Actually, there is no free will in any way, shape, or form at all because there's just a bunch of rearranged chemicals. You're doing exactly what your chemicals tell you to do. You're dancing to your DNA, if you will. Okay? That's that worldview. And what's going to happen? It's a hopeless worldview. There is no hope for the future. There's no hope of overcoming the evil in this world. There's no justice other than what you might see in our world today where criminals might um, either do time or whatever the, the right discipline for that would be. Um, but ultimately, there's no justice. Hitler gets the same thing as Mother Teresa. Okay? You just die and you go to the grave and that's it. Um, and by the way, I'm not saying that, I'm not making any statement about Mother Teresa's salvation or anything. That's not where I'm going. Just think of the worst person on earth that we can think of and one of the most selfless people that we can think of in the past hundred years. That's all, that was my point. Um, but from our perspective, it's very, very different, isn't it? Okay, we see the world very differently than they do. So, and what happened in the early 1800s, you get these, these scientists. In fact, geology was brand new at that time. Charles Lyell was a lawyer. He wasn't a scientist. And he's studying those rock layers, and he's fudging some of his numbers to get those things out there. Um, you couldn't go to school and get a degree in geology at the time. It was just getting started. And a lot of these guys say, hey, these rocks prove the earth is millions of years old. And what did the Christian leaders do? A lot of them said, well, okay, we'll just take that and add that to the Bible. But if you're going to do that, where are you going to add the millions of years? You can't add them between Adam and Jesus because you have these genealogies that take you right from Adam to Jesus. There's nowhere to put it. So the only place you could possibly put the millions of years would be in Genesis chapter 1. But where are you going to put them? In Genesis 1, you're going to put millions of years of time before there was time? Well, that doesn't make any sense. So it has to be after God starts creating things. Um, so are you going to put a gap in there, some people do? Are you going to spread them out over long periods of time, as some people do? So the gap theory says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop, and you dump the millions or billions of years there, and then you continue on. God recreates things. Okay, so that, that was a popular view and still is a popular view in certain circles and it's made it, its way into some study Bibles. You have the day-age theory where each of those days of creation gets stretched out and be long periods of time. Do you know how long they would have to be to fit the 4.6 billion years that they tell us the planet is? Each of them would have to be about 740 million years long. Question, how do the plants from day three survive for 740 million years before the sun shows up the next day? 
And how do they get pollinated for 1.4 billion years before the insects show up on day five, the flying creatures? See the problem? And that's not the only one. There's a lot of problems. Um, or you do what theistic evolutionists does. They take the evolutionary story, put it in, t- rip out Genesis 1 through 11, put the evolutionary story in there, and begin your Bible with Abraham in chapter 12. So no matter which view you take, if, other than six-day creation, if you're trying to reinterpret Genesis, you're making it say something that it doesn't say, and you're reading into the Bible. And one of the problems with that is you're putting a record of death, suffering, and disease for hundreds of millions of years before God calls everything very good. What does that say about God's character? If you've just done that, if you said God called a world full of death, suffering, diseases like cancer going on for hundreds of millions of years with trillions upon trillions of creatures killing and eating each other and all that kind of stuff going on for, for hundreds of millions of years, and God says, that's very good, just the way I like it. What does that say about God's character? He's a God of death and suffering, and he likes it, right? What does the Bible tell us? That he's holy, just, and pure, and merciful, and loving. Think about it this way. Oh, Adam, this is such a perfect world. Yes, Eve, it's very good, just like God has said, except for sitting on top of billions of years worth of death, suffering, and disease. Does that make any sense? So to say that God called that world very good is actually an attack on the character and nature of God. His perfectly holy and good nature. Now, I'm not saying that every Christian who's done that is intentionally trying to attack God. I'm, I don't think that for a second. I think that they've been misled a little bit to think that we have to somehow fit that millions of years in there. Maybe they even have good intentions, like, oh, we're going to be better at reaching people who already believe this. And so they might have some good intentions, but why not just start with God's word and see what he says and trust him? He was there. He knows what he did. He told us what he needed. He cannot lie. Okay, so let's just do that. The Bible tells us the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That is one of my favorite verses. Someday death is going to die. I can't wait. But if it's an enemy, how can God call it very good? See the problem? It's inconsistent. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. The Bible tells us death came because of sin. Now people look at that in Romans 5 and also in 1 Corinthians 15. They'll say, yeah, but that, that's talking just about human death. Okay, it is primarily referring to human death. But in Romans 8, we, tell, we know that the whole world groans and travails in pain together until now. Why? Because of sin. We know that originally animals were not killing animals for food. Meaning they weren't carnivorous. They weren't ki- there was no death. That's what the Bible tells us. We know that eventually there's going to be a time when the, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. That's something that's coming according to Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65. It's hearkening back to a time when that took place before. Okay? We're not looking forward to a re, uh, the, the um, redemption of all things or the restoration of all things and a world that was full of death, suffering, disease. That's not what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to a world where there is no curse, no sin, no death, no suffering, no tears, right? No pain. But if he's just remaking it like it was before and you've added the billions of years, then we don't have much to look forward to. So how about thorns? We find those in the fossil record. Some of them date back, according to conventional dating, 300 million years. And ladies, those uh, roses that you like so much that we always forget to buy you on February 14th and on your birthday, um, they have thorns on them. They allegedly evolved 35 million years ago. So when God tells Adam the ground's going to produce thorns for you, Adam could have looked around and said, so what? There's already thorns and thistles going on. Adam, now that you do this, you're going to die. He's like, yeah, everything dies already. So what? Question. In that world, what did sin do? Nothing. 
See the difference? If you already get death and suffering and disease and thorns and thistles going on for hundreds of millions of years, Adam's sin didn't do anything to this world. And then God's got to fix the world from what? From his own mistake, not from Adam's rebellion. So when you look at things like the Grand Canyon, when you look at canyons, you see these formations, and you can, there's two different ways of looking at it. Again, going back to those different lenses, the different perspectives, different worldviews, you can look at that and say, wow, it's a little bit of water or a long period of time, and Adam can come up here and probably give you eight hours of lecture on why that doesn't make any sense. Eight hours, ten hours, a four-day hike that would show you all of that, okay? Um, and, or you can look at it and say there was a lot of water and a little bit of time, and that we see over and over again. I, I should put a picture in here. I need to add it. Um, I was in Mount St. Helens area two years ago, and they have a little area called the Little Grand Canyon. It's like 140th, roughly the size of the Grand Canyon. And I have a picture of me standing down in there, and uh, Danny Faulkner, that, who was out here just a few weeks ago, uh, he, he saw the picture and he said, hey, Tim, do you realize you're the oldest thing in that picture? I thought, that's true. I, I am, I'm because I was Born before 1980 when Mount St. Helens erupted and those, the, that canyon was formed in 82 and 83. Um, and by the way, one afternoon you had these different layers were made in 82 and 83 and then one day in 83 it carved that canyon. Um, I'm the oldest thing in that picture. Older than the canyon walls, older than the stream flowing through there, older than the little bushes and trees and everything there. Because it doesn't take a long period of time, it just takes the right circumstances, the right processes. So... Uh, this is, and Adam can tell you this, but this is the Coconino Sandstone on the top and the Hermit Shale beneath, correct? Yes. Okay. I used to use a different picture, um, one that somebody else had taken, and yesterday on the way out of the canyon, I looked over and I was like, oh my goodness, that is the picture that I've used for 15 to 20 years on this talk. I'm using my own picture from now on. So I took that picture yesterday. But notice that layer right between the two, a very clear and obvious different layer, right? According to the evolutionist, there's supposed to be anywhere between 5 and 10 million years between those two layers. And yet you don't have erosion. So really you had a place in the world, here in Arizona, for 5 million to 10 million years where there was no rain, no animals running through there, burrowing through, no wind, no snow, anything like that for 5 to 10, really? And that's not the only one in the canyon. You have a whole bunch of these. That don't make any sense from the millions of years perspective. How do we look at it? Well, because these things were sorted during the flood. All these layers were laid down rapidly during the year of the flood. And there are sedimentary layers. They're laid down that way. You have these rock layers that you can see in the Grand Canyon. I'm sure Adam knows exactly where this is. He's going to show me in April or May. Is it going to be April or May? April. So the first four or five days of the trip. Um, but you get this, these folded rocks which you can't get that over billions of years if we had time we'd get into that. This is something that is evidence that they were all laid down rapidly and they were still soft and drying out when this upwarp occurs and you get all these curves in the rock without breaking. Okay? So you have all sorts of evidence that this stuff was done rapidly, not over billions of years. In fact, you don't even get rock layers over slow and gradual processes. You need things to be buried to a depth of at least 10 to 15 or 20 feet before you start getting layers. Why? Because you got roots from trees and you got um, think, creatures that burrow into there and you've got all sorts of things that are churning up the soil all the time. You don't get layers. It's only through these catastrophic processes. So again, you can look at these things and you can say a long period of time, a little bit of water, or you can say a little bit of, or a lot of water in a little bit of time. And when we look at pictures like this, we think, oh, isn't that beautiful? 
And in some ways it is. I mean, I stood on the rim of the canyon yesterday. I got to walk through it for four days. And there's so many times where you look up and you just marvel at how powerful God is. And, and you, you're amazed at how beautiful some of the setting is. And then you realize in every one of those rock layers that are above the, what's called the great unconformity, every one of those layers has fossils in it, meaning it's filled with death and suffering throughout. Because it's a symbol of a sin-cursed and broken world. It's a judgment on man's sin. That's what that should remind us of. Yes, it's awe-inspiring when you see how, how big and grand it is. But at the same time, remember, it's a reminder that God judges sin and he's serious about that. So speaking of that, that sin and death, there are two ways, just like we were looking at the fossils and everything from different perspectives. Really, there's two ways to look at that issue of death and suffering. The evolutionary view says, in a sense, death is a good thing. Death is how man gets ahead. Death is what brought man into existence. We get better and better. The evolutionary view says, or the creation view says, no, no, God created a perfect world and man wrecked it through our sin. Two very different ways of looking at the world. How can you combine these two things? How can you look at it and say it's no big deal when they are completely opposite? Question, if Adam's sin did not bring physical death into the world, which is what, if you add the millions and billions of years and everything, if Adam sinned and not bring physical death into the world, how come the solution to sin is the physical death of the Son of God on the cross and the physical resurrection from the grave? Because if sin and death have no connection, you've just undermined the gospel itself. I'm not saying you can't believe the gospel and be saved. Yes, there are people who believe in the millions of years and also trust in Christ for salvation and are saved. They're just really wrong on this area. Okay? Because salvation is not contingent upon what you believe about the age of the earth. And that you get every single detail in Genesis, right? It's about faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, okay? But if we're going to trust him there, why would we not trust him at the beginning? So when we look at that, at those rock layers, if they're really evident, I mean, they, and they are evidence of all of these things going on, but if we look at that as a slow and gradual over millions of years, you've got a big problem because we find evidence of things like cancerous tumors in dinosaur bones. And um, 17 years ago, that's me. In Green Bay, Wisconsin, being treated for acute promyelocytic leukemia, that bright orange bag there is a chemotherapy drug called idorubicin. I went through four rounds of chemo. That was not fun. I lost all of my hair. Um, I had already lost it before that. That's a joke, okay? <laughs> I can say that in my case, but it, it can be pretty scary for, especially for the kids, if mom gets it and suddenly she loses it, then you know something's really wrong. In my case, that was already a blessing. But um, why would I bring this up? Because this is where it gets really practical. If I believed in the millions of years and cancer's already been around long before Adam comes along, whose fault is cancer? God's. So God did this to me, right? Uh, no, don't get me out of there. How about a little kid? I... I survived that. I'm 17 years plus. I thank God for that, although I know if he didn't get me through it and I was with him, I'd be a lot happier than I am right now, okay? Um, because I'd be with him. But think about if it's a little kid who doesn't survive and cancer's been around for millions of years. Whose fault is it? God's. Now look at the biblical perspective. God made a perfect world and we wrecked it. Whose fault is it? Ours. And God is perfectly holy and just and pure, just like the Bible says. So the entire time I was in the hospital, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back and say, oh, look how super spiritual you are. I never said, God, why me? 
Because I knew why me. Because I am a sinner living in a sin-cursed world where good things and bad things happen to quote-unquote good people and bad people. Okay? And that's part of living in a sin-cursed world. But if it's billions of years and, and that's what God did, then maybe I could shake my fist at him. This one was a drug called Midoxantron. It's the, the third round of chemo I had. They told me it could turn the whites of my eyes blue. You guys want to see what that looks like? Well, it didn't happen, so I can't show you. Um, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a really pretty blue color. But anyways, this is what so many people do when tragedy strikes. They blame God because they don't have the right view of this world. They think that the world full of death and suffering and disease is the way that he set it up. And yet that's not the way it was. God created man to live and not to die. It's not until man rebelled that death entered the world. So when we take God's perfect word and we take these ideas that man has about the past and about the present and about the future, trying to explain the world apart from God, and you try to combine them, which one gets modified? Nearly every single time, people will change what God says in Genesis and they won't touch the evolutionary view. And yet, this changes all the time. Why would we corrupt God's perfect word with something that is constantly changing. Every week on Answers News on Monday at, at, at the Creation Museum, we do a program at 2 o'clock Eastern where we cover seven news items from the previous week. And it's like almost every single week we have one article that says, this changes everything we ever believed about evolution of this creature or about humans or about this thing. Every week they do that. Why would we keep changing God's word with something that constantly changes? People who weren't there, who don't know everything, who make mistakes and are trying to explain the world apart from God, why would we change God's word to, fa- to fit what they're saying? And it doesn't matter which view you take. If you're a Christian, you're trying to make Genesis say something that doesn't. You're undermining that foundation, and you're making the text say something it doesn't. You're putting yourself in authority over God's word. God says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, this is during the Ten Commandments, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. So you're not just changing Genesis 1 through 11. Now you're also changing the Ten Commandments. Israel, you're going to work six days and rest one. Why? Because that's what I did. Imagine if it was millions of years. You better hope it's Friday night. Or you're going to have a really long work week. In Mark 10, when Jesus was asked about divorce concerning marriage, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Male and female go back to the beginning. Think about the different timelines. The top one represents what the Bible is telling us, that Adam and Eve are made at the beginning. 4,000 years later, Jesus comes along and says, Adam and Eve at the beginning. The billions of years timeline, you got billions and billions and billions of years, and finally you get the first people on the planet at the very end. And Jesus comes on a little bit later and says, from the beginning, male and female. Wrong. Was Jesus wrong? If I ever ask that question, the answer is no. Okay? He wasn't wrong. Um, but you get the same thing in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even, even as the eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. People are... From the beginning, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen, right? And can be known from creation. Who is doing the seeing and understanding in this passage? People. Meaning people have been there since the creation, since the beginning. Not billions of years later. So you're not just changing Genesis 1 through 11. You're changing Exodus. You're changing the New Testament to make it fit that. It's not an issue of science versus faith. It's worldview versus worldview. It's really an issue of authority. Where do we begin? From God's infallible word? The word of the one who knows all things, who has always been, who was there, who told us what he did and who cannot lie? Or the word of man that changes all the time? Which one are we going to believe? 
So it's not really about whether it's a young earth or not. It's a matter of trusting God's word and that foundation right back in Genesis. I like what Martin Luther said regarding this issue. He says, when Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, and let this period continue to have been six days, and do not venture to to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. (laughs) Amen. If you don't get something in Scripture, that's fine. God is a lot smarter than you. He knows it, okay? And we can trust him. So I like what Jesus said here. He's talking to Nicodemus. It's a different context, but he says, I have spoken to you of earthly things you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? We've taught young people. They don't have to believe the earthly things in the Bible that can be checked out. Why would they ever believe the spiritual things in the Bible that they can't test? Why not show them the Bible is trustworthy from the very beginning? So they believe those earthly things. They also will believe the heavenly as well. Bible tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. That's where we get our word apologetics. From the Greek word there's translated as give a defense. To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you and do it with meekness and fear. Some translations say gentleness and respect. So as Pastor Aaron was talking about, you don't do it in a way that is mocking and ridiculing other people. You show love to every single person. In fact, didn't Jesus say something about that? All people will know you are my disciples if you bicker and complain and argue with all the other Christians all the time, right? Is that what he said? All people know you're my disciples if you hit them over the head with the Bible as many times as you can, right? No, if you have love for one another. And that's something that is sorely lacking in the church big picture, you know, um, across the U.S. and around the world. We don't do a great job with that, and yet that's what Jesus told us. He commanded us to love one another. And he also told us to love our enemies and to love your neighbor. That covers everybody, by the way, okay? So what's happened for a long time, back in the 1800s, you get these attacks that come in, and the church responds, you know, these millions of years and everything. The church is like, well, I'm so glad it didn't hit the cross. And yet they don't realize they weren't aiming for the cross. They were aiming for that foundation. And we're like, oh, don't worry, it's just a side issue. But then they send more of all these different things, with, whether it's the dating methods you know, for the age of the earth and all the millions of years, the, not a global flood, all those different things that ape men, and they keep attacking, and that structure is collapsing. And we're like, well, it still didn't hit the cross to the point that now they do fire right at the cross and hardly anybody blinks. So was Jesus gay? Probably. That's from the Guardian. Uh, how about this? Jesus, the first transgender man. Or Jesus was drag queen with queer desires, claims theology professor. You think they're not out there attacking Jesus and who the Son of God is? Think about that. The creator who gave them life and then died on the cross for their sins. This is what they're doing. And yet, so much of it stems from giving up that foundation back in Genesis. You've probably seen these diagrams, these castle diagrams that Ken Ham has used for many, many, many years, and they're still relevant today. What happens so often is you've got the this castle built on man's word on the left, and you get some of these different symptoms of the problem. Some Christians will fight the symptoms, and we should fight those symptoms, but we don't realize that it's a foundational battle. And what's, the other side has been very good because they keep attacking that foundation. Meanwhile, what do you have Christians doing? You've got Christians shooting each other. You've got some shooting off into nowhere. You've got somebody sleeping at the, at the cannon there. And some people are attacking the issues. Sometimes they're shooting their own foundation. And that's what we see in so many different churches. What should we be doing? Well, we should attack those issues. We should attack that foundation. And we should be restoring our own. And I think we need one other thing here. We should be throwing life preservers, the gospel of Jesus Christ, out to those people jumping off that castle. Okay? So 
if we can summarize it this way, and we summarize the entire message of, our, of the Creation Museum, what we do there, the first Adam rebelled in the garden, right? Had a perfect world, God gave him dominion, and he rebels, he blows it. The second Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ comes along, and he is also tempted in the garden the night before his crucifixion, the night that he was arrested, and instead he says, not my will, but your will be done. And then he goes to the cross and dies for each one of us. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. So the gospel message is rooted in Genesis. If we give that up, we've undermined the foundation of the gospel itself. It is so important for us to take a stand from a practical perspective at how we explain death and suffering in this world and why bad things happen. It's so um, relevant to the gospel itself. It's relevant to the different issues we see. It's relevant when you stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon you're trying to explain them. If you start from God's word, you can answer those questions and they make sense. If you give up that foundation, suddenly it's like we just have this leap in the dark. We hope we pick the right one. All right, well, let me... Close in prayer, and then we'll continue the service. I'm not sure what's next, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to speak about your word and about what you've done in this world. And Lord, we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was willing to become one of us, to live a sinless life, to show us how we should live, and to become the way that we could spend eternity with you, that we could one day live in a world, in a in a new heaven, a new earth where there is no more death, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more curse, and no more pain. And it's because of what your son did on the cross in our place, taking our penalty, paying our punishment, and then three days later you raised him from the dead, showing you a power over sin and death. Father, I pray that each one of us will live our lives out of gratitude for what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.